If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full important safety information, visit juviderm.com. Welcome back to Misconduct. I'm Eileen, and joining me as always is Colleen. How you doing, Colleen? I'm good. I have a three-day weekend this weekend, so I've just been hanging out and not really doing anything. I went on a hike today, so nice. I feel very good about myself. Um, but how are you? I'm good. I love three-day weekends. Me and Emily decided that Sunday was going to be our, you know, like, let's deep clean the house and go shopping so we could enjoy, you know, Monday. But um, we ended up Shopping. That was about it. We didn't do the deep clean, <laughs> but oh, uh, shopping yeah. is the fun part. Yeah, exactly. And you know, just edited our mini app for Patreon and researched Ooh. and whatnot. So it was nice. But something uh, we wanted to mention was that we are going to CrimeCon in Nashville this year. We aren't official guests, but many of our pod friends are going to be there, and we just couldn't pass up an opportunity to go hang out with them and go to Nashville. So. If you guys are going, let us know. We would love to meet you guys. We might be working on a meetup with some of the other podcasts, so we'll let you know once we get any of those details hammered out. But let us know if you're going to be there in Nashville this year. And one last thing, if you follow us or True Crime Fan Club on Twitter, you'll see that Lainey is coming to L.A. at the end of March uh, for the Gen Y meetup. And we're going to be there, too, since it's so close. And so if you're in the area and you're not already planning to go to the meetup, you definitely should. The Gen Y guys are so nice and super awesome. And Lainey is really great, too. (laughs) And it would be really fun to meet everybody. But now let's get to this week's episode. This week, we're discussing the mysterious death of Cindy James. Cindy was living in Canada when she began receiving disturbing phone calls. Phone calls turned into threatening letters, and that turned into weird happenings at her home. These bizarre instances culminated in Cindy being attacked on five separate occasions over seven years. Despite all of the contact that was being made with Cindy, police were unable to pinpoint a suspect. Police conducted multiple in-depth investigations into who could be responsible, but again, nobody was identified. Cindy's ordeal came to a tragic end seven years after the first phone call, but many questions remained. Most importantly, who was responsible for Cindy's harassment and ultimate death? And did she do this to herself? Or did the person responsible evade capture despite a heavy police presence? 
So this week, we're going to Vancouver, British Columbia, and it's 1965, and Cindy James is a 20-year-old nursing student working at the Vancouver General Hospital. It was here that she met Roy Makepeace, a doctor who was working on his psychiatric residency. Their relationship started out as a platonic work friendship and progressed into a romantic relationship. Roy, who was in a shaky marriage at the time, divorced his wife, and Cindy and Roy married just a couple weeks later in 1966. Despite the age difference, Roy was 18 years older than the now 21-year-old Cindy. By his account, their marriage was a good one. They stayed married for 16 years before splitting up. In July of 1982, Cindy packed up her things and their dog Heidi and moved into an apartment in Vancouver. When questioned later, Roy said their separation was amicable and the two were on speaking terms. That was, quote, until all the nonsense came on. Three months after their separation in October of 1982, Cindy got a disturbing phone call. She picked up the phone to hear a man on the other end saying sexually graphic and violent things to her, and furthermore, he called her by her name. She slammed the phone down only to get another call right away, and this time she just heard heavy breathing. And I feel like everybody's gotten a prank phone call, but to hear Mm -hmm. them call you by your name is very disturbing. Oh, yeah. The next night, the man called her phone again, and this time he said, you're dead, Cindy. And she got a couple more heavy breathing calls over the next day or two. And then after the third or fourth call, she drew all the blinds in her house. She said her phone rang immediately after she closed the blinds, and the voice said, don't think pulling the drapes doesn't mean that I don't know that you're in there, Cindy. Mm. Creepy. The creepy calls continued until October 12th when Cindy finally called the police. And they gave her the following recommendations. They told her to log the calls, unlist her number, and call the police if you hear any suspicious noises at your house. The next time she got a call threatening sexual violence, she told the caller that she had reported them to the police, and the person on the other end called her a fucking bitch and threatened to get her. After this call, the experiences Cindy reported escalated and got a lot scarier. That same night, Cindy called the police again, saying she heard someone at her back door. Police responded to her house, but found no evidence that someone was trying to force their way in through her back door. On October 15th, Cindy came back from shopping to find one of her windows smashed, but when the police investigated, they concluded that the window was broken from the inside of the house. A week later, Cindy came home to another scary scene. Her back door was ajar, but there was no sign of forced entry. In her bedroom, there was a key on the floor, which explained how the intruder got in, and her pillow had been treaded and stabbed over and over. Cindy fled her house and ran to a neighbor's to call the police. Once again, a police investigation found no useful evidence. At this point, the police began to question the validity of Cindy's experiences. Anytime she reported anything in her home, no evidence of an intruder was found. Police began to wonder if she was making the calls and break-ins up for attention. Glass broken from what seemed like the inside and a stab pillow would be plenty easy for someone to stage. Either way, the police logged the incident. Cindy changed her locks and installed deadbolts on her doors. Officer Pat McBride, who had been assigned to Cindy's case, also put an order in for more police to patrol the neighborhood. McBride was recently divorced and looking for a place to stay in between apartment leases, so Cindy ended up subletting a room to him. She felt better about having a police officer living in the house, and soon after he moved in, they began dating. 
Cindy continued to receive strange calls while McBride lived with her. He would listen in on some of the heavy breathing calls, and he even managed to do a partial trace on one. He traced it to somewhere near the airport, and even though nothing came of the trace, McBride did say that this was the point in time when he was sure Cindy wasn't making things up for attention. McBride moved out into his new apartment, and the calls and strange happenings began to escalate. The calls continued, both heavy breathing ones and the obscene ones. Then a card with cut and pasted letters was found on Cindy's car windshield. She was also mailed a card that said Merry Christmas and had a picture of a woman with her throat slashed with red ink. Mm. At this point, Cindy had been harassed for over two months at her place and decided that she wanted to move. In late January 1982, Cindy signed a new lease on a new apartment and was in the process of packing up her old place. Her friend Agnes would often come over and spend the night so Cindy wouldn't be alone in her apartment, and on this particular night, Agnes planned to come over and help Cindy finish up her packing. Agnes came over at 9.30, which was their agreed-upon time, and no one answered the door. Concerned Agnes went to walk around the side of her house to the backyard and found Cindy on the side area of the house. She was on the ground near the stairs that led down to her basement. She had a black nylon stocking tied around her neck, and it was tied so tightly that it had to be cut off with a knife. Also, there are numerous cuts and slash marks on her arms and legs. Cindy said that she was taking boxes out to the garage when someone attacked her from behind. She remembered him saying, keep quiet or I'll cut your face. She didn't remember much about the attack, but she did say that she thought she was drugged because she remembers feeling a prick in her arm. She also said she remembered feeling the man cut her repeatedly, strangle her with the stocking, and say, it will take a long time to die before leaving her there. So the officers who took the report did not believe that Cindy was attacked. First off, Cindy was not forthcoming with details, saying that she didn't want to relive the experience. The direction of the cuts also suggested that they might have been self-inflicted. In the report, investigators actually wrote that they believed it was a suicide attempt and the stocking was wrapped around Cindy's neck so she could hang herself. Despite the initial report, an investigator was assigned to the case and it was treated as an assault and attempted murder. The natural first person of interest was her soon-to-be ex-husband, Roy. Roy had an alibi for the night of the attack and after law enforcement verified his whereabouts, he was cleared. Meanwhile, Cindy offered to take a polygraph in order to try and erase any doubt investigators might have about her attack, but she ended up failing the polygraphs twice. The person who administered the polygraph mentioned that she might have failed due to stress from the whole situation, but Cindy was angry and wanted the investigation shut down. She refused to sign her statement regarding the attack, and now with no evidence of a crime and no one reporting the crime, the investigation was marked inactive. Cindy went on to move into her new house, but within two months, the call started up again, and then the letters followed. Then creepy things around her house, like breaking her outside lamps and even one instance of cut phone lines. Her friends suggested that she move into an apartment complex where she would have neighbors in close proximity, or better yet, she could live in a complex with a gate or something with more security, but Cindy refused. She moved into her third place since her separation, and it was a little house with a yard for her dog to run around in. And then she went out of the country on a vacation for several weeks. When she came back from her trip, all things seemed mostly quiet, and it seemed like the third move was the charm and the calls and harassing letters had finally stopped. 
The calm and quiet period only lasted through the end of the summer, though. In August, she received a letter with cutout magazine letters that spelled out, Welcome back, death, blood, love, hate. Two months later, on October 15th, there was a dead cat with a rope around its neck with a note next to it saying, you're next, in her yard. And over the next several weeks, Cindy would discover two more dead cats in her yard. In the meantime, Cindy's relationship with Pat McBride had fizzled out when she did not accept his marriage proposal, and the police were not taking the harassment serious. McBride, upset over their breakup, still helped Cindy find a private investigator to help. The calls continued into January of 1984, and then at the end of the month, Cindy was attacked for a second time. Her private investigator, Ozzy Caban, had set up multiple surveillance systems in Cindy's house that he promised would help him catch whoever was responsible. One of the things that Caban had set up was a two-way radio that connected Cindy's house to Caban's office. On the night Cindy was attacked for a second time, Caban found her after he rushed over to her house to look into some weird noises he had picked up on the radio. By the time he arrived, the house was totally silent. Caban walked around the house, looking into windows as he went, when he saw her lying on the ground. He ran to the front door, kicked it in, and found Cindy face down on the floor, and once again, she had a black nylon stocking around her neck. The stocking wasn't the only thing at the scene, though. There was also a paring knife stabbed through her hand with a note that spelled, now you must die, cunt, in cutout letters. This investigation mirrored the first. There was no physical evidence at the scene and no leads. So once again, there was no evidence anyone was in the house aside from Cindy. And Cindy was really frustrated with the whole thing. From her perspective, she had suffered harassment for going on two years. And now she'd been attacked in her home twice, and she felt that the police did not believe her. Then Cindy began suggesting weird theories that made the police question her story even more, the most strange of which was that maybe Roy was doing this to her through voodoo. And even though the theory was bizarre, and he had been cleared in the last attack, investigators brought Roy in for questioning again, and he was interrogated for six hours, but he maintained his innocence and apparently didn't lose his cool throughout the entire thing. He was cleared of any involvement, and after that, he made the decision to put distance between himself and Cindy. Pat McBride was also investigated and cleared after he took a polygraph. Then Caban, the private investigator, told Cindy to take another polygraph, and this time she did pass. She was asked if she knew her stalker, if she was her stalker, if she stabbed herself, and if she tied the stocking around her own neck, and she said no to everything, and the polygraph results showed that she was telling the truth. Authorities had no direction and no leads, and Basically, they were stumped and didn't know if Cindy had a stalker or if she was doing this to herself. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. 
Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Six months later, another call was placed to the police from Cindy's home. It was Cindy's birthday and Heidi, her dog, went missing. She was quickly recovered in the basement with a cord tied around her neck and a note that said, Fuck, last days, warning, run, death, happy birthday, love. Police prioritized her calls and her private investigator put in more cameras, but that didn't prevent Cindy from being attacked for a third time. Cindy collapsed in the doorway of a house with a black nylon stocking wrapped around her neck. She had been out walking Heidi when a van pulled up and asked for directions, and that's where her memory cuts off, and she said she didn't remember anything after that. The case was sent to major crimes, and to try to gather more information on the attack, investigators tried hypnosis. And believe it or not, things got weirder. Under hypnosis, Cindy described a camping trip she took with Roy in 1981, right before they separated. She said she went for a walk while Roy was looking at property, and she found a cabin at the top of a hill, so she went inside. And that is where she said that she saw Roy cutting up two dead bodies with an axe. She said he put the bodies in a bag and threw them into the ocean. And the hypnotist found Cindy's emotion during her retelling to be so real that they took the story seriously and reported it to the police. Police followed up and actually investigated Roy and vetted the story that turned out to be false. And Roy was so angry at the most recent allegations that he completely cut off contact with Cindy altogether. In June 1985, the harassment, whether real or not, had been plaguing Cindy for nearly three years. And during a routine checkup visit, she told her doctor that she wanted to die. And she was diagnosed with severe depression and committed to a mental hospital where she spent a month. After she was released, police put her under heavy surveillance, racking up $75,000 in man hours during this time, she didn't receive any calls or notes, and due to cost, the surveillance was discontinued. Just four days after police ended their surveillance, Cindy received a book called You Can Heal Your Life, with a black nylon stocking in the book like a bookmark. When the book was opened to the bookmarked page, there was an underlined phrase that read, quote, blood flowing freely. Police reactivated their heavy surveillance campaign, and this time she was watched for 25 days. During this time, nothing happened. During this time, she moved again, and four days after the surveillance ended, she got another harassing call. A week after the harassing call, Cindy was attacked for a fourth time. This time she was found in a ditch, lying in a puddle in very cold weather. Her clothes were soaked, and she had a men's boot on her right foot and a black rubber glove on her right hand. A black nylon stocking was also wrapped around her neck. Cindy said she had no memory of the events leading up to the attack. She was examined by a psychiatrist who noted that he believed that these events were self-initiated. He did make sure to note that he didn't believe that she was just making this up for attention. He suggested that she was in some sort of altered fugue state. So while she was doing these things to herself, she didn't know it was self-inflicted. After recovering from exposure in the hospital, Cindy went to visit her brother who lived out of the country. After she returned, things were calm for a few months. In April of 1986, Cindy was at her home with her friend Agnes and Agnes's husband, Tom. Cindy had been feeling uneasy again, and Agnes, once again, had started spending the night at her home on a regular basis. 
While the three were at the house, someone set fire to the basement. Everyone escaped without harm, and the police investigated. The first theory was that someone threw a firebomb through the window in the basement. But further investigation showed that the glass had fallen outward, meaning the window had been broken from the inside. The source of the fire was a liquid accelerant, and it was found on the carpet away from the window. There was also no trace of anyone inside the house except for Agnes, Tom, and Cindy. Investigators didn't believe that Cindy didn't set the fire herself, and her landlord evicted her from the apartment. She spent another two months in a mental hospital, and after that, she took a leave of absence from her job, but word of her potentially declining mental state got around and she was asked to resign. She went through a depressed period, but she wasn't being tormented by her stalker anymore, so she decided to return to nursing and got a job in a hospital. Almost two years after the arson at her home in October 1988, Cindy was attacked for a fifth time. A police officer found her in her car unconscious and her hands tied behind her back, and she was naked from the waist down. She had duct tape over her mouth and had been punched in the face. And finally, a black nylon stocking had been tied around her neck, and so she was taken to the hospital and she was in a coma. She was questioned after she woke up and she said she didn't remember anything uh, of investigatory value anyway. There was no evidence of anyone at the scene other than herself, and although she said she thought that she remembered seeing two men. So with yet another instance of no one but Cindy being present at the time, the police didn't take this attack seriously. After the fifth attack, the notes continued to her house and at her work. Security guards found notes on her car, some that said soon Cindy and another one said sleep well. The alarm at her house went off four times between November 1988 and May 10th, 1989, and that's when it went off for the last time. On May 25th, 1989, Cindy disappeared. Her car was found near her home with groceries and rat present inside. There was blood on the driver's side and the contents of her wallet under the car. Besides her car, there was no sign of Cindy. Two weeks later, a construction worker made a gruesome discovery. In a blackberry bush, Cindy was found dead with her hands and feet bound. There was a black nylon stocking tied around her neck. The scene looked like a murder, but the autopsy showed that Cindy died of an overdose of morphine. Her death was ruled a suicide. An inquest was opened to investigate Cindy's death, and every angle was reinvestigated. Roy was reinvestigated and cleared once again. The murder angle was looked at, as well as a suicide angle, and this inquest was one of the most expensive in British Columbia's history. It was determined that Cindy could have bound her own hands and feet after administering herself a fatal dose of morphine. No proof could be found to determine if Cindy was murdered or if she did it to herself. So due to this, her death certificate was revised to say that she died from an unknown event. So there's three main theories people seem to have to explain what happened to Cindy. Theory one is that the police are right, that she did this all herself, that she was mentally unwell and either had something serious wrong, like multiple personalities, or would just, you know, disassociate or just wanted attention and went to these great lengths to harass herself and then ultimately killed herself. The second theory is that someone targeted her and was messing with her and ultimately killed her. And that this seven years of harassment was just an elaborate plan to torture her and break her down and then kill her. Now, who these people would be is what makes multiple theories, the, you know, the, like, the whole whodunit branches out into making a third and fourth theory. 
Some people think a cop or her husband could have done it. A cop because they would have known when the cops were gone and could continue the harassment and get away with murder, you know, their cop. This would explain why the harassment would only happen when the cops didn't have her house under surveillance because they knew about it. And some people do think that it could have been her ex-husband because he was a doctor of psychiatry and he knew how to, you know, quote, mess with someone's psyche. Plus, I think a lot of times the kind of default suspect falls onto, you know, the boyfriend, the ex-boyfriend, the husband, the ex-husband. So this kind of brings us to our final thoughts of what we think might have happened. This case creeped me out when I was researching it. I felt like no matter what the answer is, the story is really unsettling. So Eileen, what do you think happened? I'm totally, I'm just not sure. It's really puzzling. I, I, at first I was thinking about the hand tie. I'm like, how can she tie herself up like that? So I YouTubed how to tie yourself up with rope and, and lo and behold, I guess you can, it, it is possible. Um, I didn't find a ton of videos how to do it, but there are some videos how to tie yourself up and make it look like, you know, somebody else did it. So she could have tied up her feet and then, you know, did all the other stuff and lastly tied her hands, you know, and then, you know, put her legs over her hands and put them behind her back and then laid down and, and died after, you know, maybe previously ingesting a bunch of morphine by pill form because you'd have like a half an hour before it, you know, kicked in, I guess. That was actually one of the first things that I looked into because every time I just, I just assumed that it would be really hard to tie your hands behind your back. Yeah, me too. So I was like, oh no, she didn't do like, that's weird. There's no way she did this to herself. But the more I looked into it, I realized, oh, it actually is not like incredibly difficult for someone to do. You can actually do it fairly easily. And then, you know, ingesting the morphine, I mean, she's a nurse too. So she would have known that, you know, how long it would have taken and how much to take. I guess, you know, and she knew she had a delay of the effects um, so that she would have time to kind of prepare everything. And when you OD on those kind of, you know, drugs, your heart and your lungs, you just stop. They kind of stop working. You just stop breathing. Um, you just basically slow down so you're not breathing anymore. So it could be hard, like in an autopsy, to tell if she had like other scrapes and bruises and things like that go, with everything going on and she was outside you're looking at all these things and trying to decide how she died. Was it strangulation? Did she stop breathing because of that? Or was it because she took a bunch of morphine and stopped breathing? So, Right, because strangulation does leave its own signs behind. But at the end of the day, I think she could have done both to herself. You know, she could have yeah. strangled herself with the nylon stocking. And she also could have OD'd or administered, you know, like a fatal dose of morphine to herself. I was reading about tying up your own hands and apparently it can be done like if you are going to kill yourself by hanging yourself or something, mm -hmm. sometimes people tie their hands up because like your natural reaction or your like your oh, natural yeah. instinct is to like fight yeah. and try and get it off or whatever. So some people do that so they finish what they started mm -hmm. essentially. But um, basically I do think that she could have done both of them to herself. So I don't know yeah. which, which, which is, you know, which one she died from. I think the police theory that a police officer is responsible is interesting. And in just, in my opinion, it makes more sense than just a stranger unrelated to law enforcement was able to track her and do all of these things to her while evading capture for seven years. I don't think her husband was involved. I don't know that he could have hid himself from all that scrutiny from law enforcement. And I do think that the mental illness theory is also interesting. Like uh, the one where they were talking about how she may have had multiple personalities. 
And I know that disassociative identity disorder is very rare. And I don't know if she could have effectively hid that from her family and friends for years while it also having such a big impact on her life in other areas. You know what I mean? I don't know who is responsible at all. I don't even know what I think happened. But either way, I do think that the consequences that she was suffering and like all of the emotional stress she was suffering was very real to her. Yeah, seriously. I mean, just in the end, it's just a super sad story. Either way, if it was her or someone else, this woman was clearly just tortured and miserable for years. And you can see in pictures of her and how she just looks more and more beaten down as the years went by. She just wasn't well, and it could be because she was mentally unwell and did this to herself, or because she was literally tortured psychologically and physically for years before being killed. And that wraps up our show for this week, but thank you for listening. Before we go, we do have some housekeeping. First off, we want to say thank you to some of our listeners who took the time to leave us a five-star review. So thank you to, really, AJ Roger SX, GGRN1008, and Kimmy3790 for your reviews. Your reviews help us out a lot, and we really appreciate you taking the time to leave us the feedback. We also want to take a second to thank our most recent Patreon supporter. So thank you to Marissa for your Patreon support. Your support means so much to us and we can't thank you enough. If you'd like to see our Patreon page, you can go to patreon.com slash misconduct podcast. And if you want some misconduct merch, guess what? We have a store set up. You can order t-shirts, mugs, hoodies, water bottles, magnets, more, etc. Our store is set up through Zazzle and every purchase made is made to order and drop ship directly to you. All commission earned on any purchases through our store go directly to the podcast. It helps us keep the lights on and the research going. If you're interested, you can go to our website, www.misconductpodcast.com forward slash store or zazzle.com forward slash misconduct pod. And remember to always use the daily discount code as they're always there every day and you save tons. What you see is not what you pay. We also want to say a huge thank you to our researcher, Esther, for helping us put this episode together. And that wraps us up for another episode of Misconduct. Thank you so much for joining us. If you have a second, head on over to our Facebook group to discuss this week's case. We love our group and we love being able to interact with you guys. So if you are not a member, join and one of our mods will add you ASAP. We love to hear your thoughts and opinions on the cases. So hop on over and let us know what you thought of today's case. You can also follow us on Instagram and Twitter at MisconductPod. We want to give a huge shout out to the Blank Tapes who do our intro and outro music. Be sure to check them out on Bandcamp to check out more of their music. If you have a case suggestion, let us know about it. You can email us at misconductpodcast at gmail.com and we will see you next week. Want to get a chiseled look in the jawline? Sculpt and shape your jawline with added volume from Juvederm Volux XC. Juvederm Volux XC is an injectable gel specifically designed to be robust enough to improve moderate to severe loss of jawline definition. And it is the first and only hyaluronic acid filler approved for the jawline. Add volume to your jawline for a chiseled look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M dot com.
Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com.